0: Well, let me ask you a question as we get going this morning. What if the king or queen of England or some other country for some reason decided, I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to watch the Super Bowl with you. I don't know why. Maybe you entered a drawing and that happened. I don't know. But say that was going to happen. What what would you do to plan for their arrival? Now, I asked this question at the 9 o'clock hour. To the leadership that I was teaching, and, and they gave some interesting responses, and so I'm going to share them with you. Again, they are not mine, they are theirs. So these are the people leading your kids this morning, by the way, just want to put that out there. <laughs> One guy said, well, I'd set a fire. That means he would burn his house down, all right? Uh, one guy said, uh, actually, one lady said, Well, we, my family would get dressed. i like, Well, that's good. That's a good place to start. Wow, I wasn't really thinking that's where we were going to go. But all right, there's some simple things. One person said, Well, we'd, we'd have it at my sister's house, not mine. We couldn't do that. All right, that wouldn't happen. All right, so I thought those were <laughs> pretty funny comments. But, but what would we do to ready ourselves? How would you prepare? Uh, well, this morning, I, I want you to have that in mind, because John paints that kind of picture. As he begins his ministry of preparing people and making them ready for a coming, and it's the coming of the Lord. The Lord Jesus is alive at this time. He's alive and, and almost 30 years of age, probably just about 30, and his ministry, public ministry has not begun yet. And so, John is making people ready for a coming. Someone who's going to come on the scene, and it's Christ himself. And so, the question bids us to ask this morning as we look at this text is how should we get ready for Jesus' coming? And so, in light of that, we're on this side of the cross, we're on this side of Jesus' ministry and resurrection. What are we looking for? We're looking for his return, where he will come and bring those who have trusted in him unto himself. And our destiny, obviously, is to live with him forever in the new heaven and new earth. But how should we get prepared? But even for today, not just the the future, but what about this moment? How do we prepare ourselves to experience the fullness of God? to experience the fullness of God in our lives. How do we ready ourselves? Well, I think Luke gives us the answer. I think he gives us the recipe to experience the answer to these questions today of how we should ready ourselves. And he does it by telling the story of John's beginning ministry in his first sermon as he begins his public ministry as a prophet. And so let's look at the text. We're going to walk through the text that Will read this morning and then also have some words of, of application. Um, and so look at verses 1 through 2. It's the setting. It's the context. It's, it's kind of important. I know there's some big words in there. Uh, there's a West Texas city as well. I don't know how Abilene got thrown in the, the scripture, but somehow it did. Um, and so, not really, for you guys that are very literal this morning, um, but let's look at the setting and the context. Look what it says. It says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea. Will, you said that so much better. I don't know how you did all that. And Trachonidas and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. There's that city. And the high priests of Annas and Caiaphas. Check this out. The word of God came to John the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, why, Luke? Why do we need these big names? Why, why do we need all these places? And so here's what Luke does, and we've seen this already. Luke wants to paint the picture. He wants to give the context. He wants to give the setting. Why? Because remember, one of the recipients of this letter is Theophilus. Theophilus is in the government. He's, he's part of uh, the, the Roman leadership. And, and so, This was important for Luke to put the placement, the exacting truth of things happening, in its proper time, and also to other audiences, so that we would know. Okay, is is this legit? And so Luke wanted to be precise, and so he does that by addressing the political setting. Now, also what we find as the context here is the political setting was very dark. Its leadership um, was evil. And wicked, and that's part of the goal, too. Now, he also mentions the religious setting as he talks about uh, Annas and then uh, Annas's son in law, which is Caiaphas. And so, there's a family little thing going on there, uh, some nepotism going on uh, in the religious setting. And so, what he's also saying there is that the religious setting, also in that day, was very dark and very evil, also. And so, there's a purpose to what Luke. Is doing here. And so he says it is in that setting, in that day, that the word of God came to John in the wilderness where he had been living. Now, who's this John? Well, John is, is mentioned in Luke 1 as, as one who um, is in the womb of Elizabeth. A great miracle of a woman who was barren and Zacharias' dad who was uh, serving as a priest and had this amazing experience and he went mute and eventually when John was born after nine months, he was able to talk. And we remember that story from Luke chapter one. But, But John, if you remember, it said about him that he received the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mom. And then when Mary, who had been now with child, Jesus Christ came to Elizabeth, her relative, You remember what John did in the womb? He leaped. So John's doing a lot of of stuff in the womb, right? (laughs) A lot of experiences. Got the Holy Spirit in the womb, and I'm leaping. Wow, it's a lot of activity. And then John is born, and he has a mission. He has been called with a great purpose. He is to be a prophet. He is to be one who is to come before Christ and prepare the way. He is to be the forerunner. He is the one that's prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi who would come before Christ and set the stage for Jesus. This is John. Now we call him sometimes John the Baptist, has nothing to do with denomination. Um, John the Baptizer is more of a term that's also used because what we see here is he has a ministry. And one of the things that characterizes his ministry is baptism. So look at verse 3. The 400 years of silence of a prophet coming and declaring the word of the Lord is officially broken. And look at verse 3, how it is broken. He came into all the district around the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Sins. A loaded verse there. But this is John's ministry. And Luke focuses on John's ministry of baptism and preaching as John came preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, John would preach what? Repentance. His ministry was characterized by baptism. We'll talk about that in a second. But it was characterized mainly by this theme of repentance. Now, what is that word? I mean, where else do we use that word besides church? Probably nowhere. But repentance means this. It means literally, first of all, to have a change of mind. And I think at the context, the idea is that we have a change of mind about who God is. That's ultimately the goal, that we would know God through Christ, that we would have a change of mind about who He is and believe in His Son, Jesus, to be the Son of God, that we would have that kind of change of mind, and a change of mind there in result that we would have a change of purpose, that we would have a a change of how we live, our our conduct. And so repentance also is the idea that, hey, we're going this direction, and all of a sudden we we turn around and we start going a different direction. So the idea of turning is the idea and going a different direction. Now let me read to you um, some other ideas of what repentance is and looks like. Charles Spurgeon said this: that repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is in fact a change of mind of a very deep and practical character excuse me, practical character, which makes the man love what once he hated, and hate that once he loved. Listen to J.I. Packer. He writes this. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice or repentance has to be enlarged as well. John Piper says this, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all our praise and all our obedience, repentance. And so John would preach the gospel. He would preach the gospel, and what would happen, it it would change people's lives. Now, you might be sitting here going, okay, he preached the good news, he preached the gospel, but, but Jesus hasn't come yet. And so what did that look like? Well, he would speak of the Messiah that was to come, and how he was coming to change the lives of people, and to grant them salvation. Yes, through grace, by faith, he was pointing them to Jesus, and that that would Change them, it would change their hearts, it would change their minds, it would change their lives, and as a result, what would happen is people would come and then be baptized in the Jordan River. And so here's the question. We got two of them in light of this verse. What is the relationship then between baptism or excuse me, between baptism to repentance and forgiveness? How does baptism relate to those two things? Because they're mentioned in this verse, and I think it's a good question. Because I think sometimes we get it confused, or we get it backwards, or at least we do in our culture and in our day, and we see that with different denominations as well that surely do. And so, the baptism didn't bring repentance, and it didn't change people's life, the physical act, and nor does one receive forgiveness because they are baptized. It's not the point that Luke is referring to here about John's ministry, but people would repent and change and turn the other way due to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then they would respond through this expression of baptism there in the river of Jordan. So baptism itself was not powerful itself in the act, but the change that the Holy Spirit would bring to one's life truly is powerful. And so, there were those who internally in their soul, they were changed, and they responded with an outward expression of what? Of baptism. And so, that would be occurring there in the Jordan River. Many people would come. And so, in Scripture, what do we learn about this, this idea of repentance, this idea of of change, of being transformed? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, you remember what Paul said? In the first three verses, he, he talked about our condition. And he said this, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is for all of us. This is where we were, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's all of us. We were all once dead, destined for the wrath of God. And we lived as those who truly were dead, lifeless. But something happened. Paul says in verse 8 of the same chapter, For by grace you have been saved through faith. God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love, sent his Son to die for us so that those who were once dead now by grace could be saved and experience life through faith. And that not of works, but it is a gift. It's nothing that you can do, Paul says in verse 9. But we're now, those who have been changed are his workmanship. We're now created in Christ Jesus. We're a new creation. And now we live in light of that. Good works for His glory and for His kingdom's sake. And so that's the change. That's what happens. That's what repentance is. It's when we experience the kindness and the grace of God. It changes our life. And so baptism was an expression of that inward change, that change of life. But what's the relationship between repentance and forgiveness? How is that connected? Well, Ephesians 1, 7 tells us this, that in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. We've been bought with a great price through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, to the riches of his glory. And so the grace of God leads us to forgiveness, that we can be forgiven. But where and how? It's only through Christ. It's not by what we do It's not that we, oh, we go change our life, we get all cleaned up, and then by that we're forgiven. John's not preaching that, and Jesus doesn't preach that. Here's what happened. God changes our life. He does a work in us. He grants us salvation. He grants us forgiveness. And as a result of that, what happens is we have a changed life. We repent because of his grace and his kindness. And so forgiveness and repentance are never found apart. They're together. But it doesn't mean that you have to do this to get forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift that is based on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ alone. And as a result of that, it changes our life so that we repent. And so that's what John came preaching, and he preached it boldly. Now, what's cool about this is something big is happening, right? Something grand and Luke wants to give it that kind of picture because this is huge this is huge people's lives can truly be changed people do not have to keep living the way they're living that's what John is saying and Luke's like dude you got to know this this is and let me just show you how big this is. So look at verse four, because I love what he says here. He says, I want you to see what's being fulfilled. This is part of God's grand scheme, or excuse me, not scheme, his green plan, and his, his great uh, work that, that has been promised for years for us. And so look what he says. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness be yeah. happy. Good if I got out of Ephesians. All right, there we go. One crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. The rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. I love this picture. Because what was Isaiah back in Isaiah 40? This is where this is quoted from in verse 3, 4, and 5. What is he painting? He's painting a picture of a dignitary or someone of royalty who's visiting a country, a city, your, your town. And what they would do back then, what they would do is they would build a highway. They, they would change the landscape. Why? So that the person coming to the town would have this grand ceremony, this grand entrance into the town. And this is something they would do. So he wants to paint that picture. But, but The picture is something grander than that, much grander than that. And so what Luke is saying is, hey, John is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was speaking about. And his ministry and his message of his preaching is building a highway. It's about a highway making us ready for royalty coming. But this royalty isn't an earthly royalty. This royalty is the royalty of heaven. It's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so what Isaiah is saying here is is John is coming and he's preparing the way, but what is that highway being built? And this is is the big point that I think Luke makes in the ministry of John. The highway is repentance. You see, John didn't come to mend roads, right, and to change landscape and stuff like that. Oh, he came to change trans- landscape, but the landscape of hearts, right? And so what Luke is saying is John came preaching repentance, and that that highway would ready the people to usher in Jesus. And so that's the point. a beautiful picture. So the highway is repentance. What does repentance do? It, it opens our lives to. It invites the fullness of God into our life. It changes the landscapes of things. It changes generations. It, it changes your family. It changes everything. And that's the picture that Luke's painting here. And so John's preaching is bringing people to the Jordan to be baptized. And truly, what is happening here is people are seeing this and watching this. As verse six says, "All flesh will see the salvation of God." How will they see that through the changed lives of people? who come to know Jesus Christ, and they're seeing it there in the Jordan as people are being baptized. And so God's opening their eyes to change and how true change can come. And so look at verse seven. As he's preaching, look what he's preaching. And and this may be a little interesting. You're like, hey, this looks all good. This is exciting. Not all people were in line with what John was saying. Look at verse seven. He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, Sam came to John wanting to simply escape the wrath of God. And so he says here, you brood of vipers, you you offspring of snakes. You just want to wiggle your way out of, of having to face the judgment of God, but you are not willing to truly change. And so they're wicked, they're they're evil, they're like snakes. And What were they concerned about? They were concerned about covering themselves. They were making sure they were okay in the end and safe, but they weren't down with repenting of truly being changed. And so he says, as a result of that, look at verse 8 and 9, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the roots of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So what he's saying here is true repentance produces what? Good fruit. Good fruit. If one has truly experienced repentance that comes from knowing God through Jesus Christ, they will live in a way that reflects such a changed life, so much so that John says they will bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, what John was facing here, some were saying, well, hey, listen, Abraham's my father. I'm a descendant of Abraham. They were saying, I'm a Jew, right? And they were using um, their ethnicity, To say, hey, that's what saves us from the wrath of God. Basically what they were saying is, Abraham's righteousness covers me. And obviously that is truly not the case. Only the the righteousness of Christ can cover us. And so what were they saying? Some believed that ethnic privilege or because one lived in a certain area or country. We even see that today in different parts of the world. Well, I live in this area. It's a Christian area area or territory, so therefore, I'm Christian. But there's no personal relationship with Jesus. It's kind of like this. It's basically saying like, hey, well, my parents are believers, and so therefore, I'm good, right? Yeah, blood ties, all right, will not save us from the wrath of God. Neither will simply being a church member. Well, I went through church membership, so I'm good. No, will not. A godly heritage Will not either. All those things, if we're basing our relationship with Christ on those things, those things will send people straight to hell. Only the gospel and belief in Jesus Christ is true salvation that causes us to escape the wrath of God and to live a life that bears fruit of repentance. Now, you might ask, according to verse 8, how do I know that I'm bearing fruits of repentance. One of the things that I think is practical is to take a verse like Galatians 5.22, and where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and you look at these that are characteristics of those who have truly come to know Christ. And you look at those and you say, hey, am I increasing in this area? Am I being more loving? Am I being... More joyful? And I, am I filled with, with peace? Am I, am I filled with more patience? And on and on and on and on. And it's a good character check. And then John also addresses our conduct as well. But I think he wants to be sure that we understand here in verse 9 that this is serious. He mentions here that the ax is where it's already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He wants us to know that God cannot be fooled. God can't be fooled. He's clear with the message, John is, that we are to repent. That our life is to be changed by the power of Jesus Christ alone. And we are to live a life that bears much fruit as a result. But if we don't, If our life is not changed by the gospel, the wrath of God we will face. Judgment will come, and it is eternal forever. But look at verse 10. He says, okay, he continues to preach, but then he has kind of like a, it's almost like a discussion hour, almost like a life group setting, it seems like, where people start coming up and and asking questions. And this is beautiful. Maybe they were raising their hands and saying, hey, I got a question, John, what about this? But look at verse 10 through 11. He says, the crowds were questioning him, saying, what shall we do? Great question. And he would answer this, say to them, uh, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do the likewise. And then he would say that some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, "'Hey, teacher, what shall we do?' And he said to them, "'Collect no more than what you have been ordered to.'" And then the last group, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, "'What about us? What shall we do?' And he said to them, "'Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages.'" these different groups, citizens, crowd, uh, members of the crowd, tax collectors, soldiers, they were all coming and asking, what do we do? Well, he told the crowd, he said, listen, many Jews would wear two tunics. Now, tunics was kind of like an undergarment. It wasn't what we would consider underwear, but it was was like an undergarment. And they would usually wear two. Well, he said, hey, you got two. This guy has none. Why aren't you giving up one to the other? Instead of keeping it for yourself, then why not also give them food? So the old idea here was, hey, listen, a true fruit and bearing with repentance is what? Generosity, not greed. Generosity, a willingness to share, a willingness to give. Then he tells the tax collectors, hey, listen, um, to these sincere ones who were coming who wanted to repent, he said, refrain from extorting more and more money, then you should rightly receive, which was a common practice of tax collectors. And so what was he promoting? Honesty and freedom from greed. And we see the change of that with a guy like Matthew, where his life would be changed. And then soldiers. Well, why did he address soldiers? Well, what soldiers would do, and as they're asking Luke, what do we do? He would tell them, hey, listen, um, some of you guys, you, you make this much, but some of you guys have This much because what you're doing is you're acquiring more money by going to people and threatening them and saying, you have to do this or else. And what they would do is say, hey, you have to pay this or I'm going to take you in on maybe a false claim. And so, he would extort money from, they would extort money to have more money as a result. So, therefore, he told the soldiers, hey, listen, be content. Be content with what you're making, And so, what's the point here? What's the point that John's trying to make? Because many back then faced that material possessions were a source of temptation, just as it is today. And what he's saying here is the way we hold on to our money, or what we do with our money, what we do with our possessions, is a good sign of where we are spiritually. Are you generous? With your possessions? Do you give and share what you have joyfully joyfully, or do we hang on to it with, with greed? Does it hurt you to give to others? So we're called to repent and to bear fruits of repentance. Specifically, he's saying here how we handle our resources. So let me just stop for a second. Because what John's gonna do next, and, and just give you 15 through 20. Is He he tells us, hey, there's one who's coming who is mightier than I. He's greater than I. And the baptism that he's going to bring is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is going to indwell people, that's going to change people. And so John, that's what his goal is, to to point people to Christ because Christ is the only one who can truly change lives. Now, John preached this message, and verse 18 says it's, it's good news. He preached good news. But part of his good news was also news about sin. And he exposed it. He exposed it so much in his day that as he started calling out even leaders like Herod about his relationship with his brother's wife, that it's going to end up that he's going to end up in jail and eventually lose his head, literally. Right? And so, what do we learn here? I think think real simply, the message of repentance is not popular. <laughs> For you, that may be like, that's not much breaking news this morning. <laughs> but it's not popular. And it's not popular with us. <laughs> we don't like to think about that we could be wrong about something. <laughs> we don't like to think about that I do stuff bad. Bible continually tells us, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need to change. The Bible continues to tell us, yeah. Yeah, we we all do. So the question today is, like the guys in the crowd, what do we do? What do we do? I'm gonna do this. We're gonna wrap up real quickly with just these six things. And you might say, six things? That seems like a lot. Well, I'm gonna give it to you fast. Okay. So the band, this is how serious I am about fast. If the band wants to get ready and come up. Here we go. I know some of you guys look for that cue. So here we go. Um, here's the six things. They're the recipes, okay? Or the recipe, I, I believe, from repentance. Tertullian says this I love this quote. He says, I was born for no end other end but to repent. That's, that's a good view of life. That my life is about me being changed, okay? So he, here they are. This is from Thomas Watson. 17th century pastor, he gives these six things, and I want us just to think about these and carry these because I think they're, they're valuable, okay? The first thing is the sight of sin. You might say the sight of sin. Here's what I mean. Do not be surprised that you sin. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised To find it necessary that you have to change. And when we do find that out and realize that, don't let it undo you. I mean, we should be undone like Isaiah before God. But don't let that cause you to get into this spiral. But to realize, wow, I'm to change. So so what does that mean? It means this, sin touches everything we do, every area of our life. And that's the reality of it. second thing is this, Be sorrowful. Sorrow over your sin. We are to be sorrowful over sin because why? Sin is sinful. We're not to be sorrowful over sin because it's painful and we got caught or because of consequences. That's not the point. But to be sorrowful over sin because sin is sin. The third thing is confess sin, the confession of sin. Genuine repentance takes ownership of sin and its consequences. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sins, what? Jesus is faithful, and he is righteous to forgive us. Fourth, shame of sin. All sin makes us guilty. And that guilt is only removed at the cost of Christ. And so, why should that make us shameful? Because we realize, wow, I'm doing or living for something that Christ died for willingly for me and that should cause us to be filled with shame the fifth thing hatred of sin when we get angry at our own sin we are reflecting something god's holiness god's purity hate sin don't play around with it Don't think, well, I'm I'm in this season of life, I'm young or whatever, and oh, nobody else knows or nobody else is going to see this, so it's okay. No, Jesus says, hate it. Why? Because he hates it. He hates it. And then lastly, turn from sin. Repentance means very little if it does not result in reformation. If we repent without a sincere desire to keep from engaging in that sin in the future, then one or more of the ingredients that I just mentioned, one through five, is probably missing. It's probably missing. And so John's message was for the people to say, okay, how do I look at sin? My sin. Are we serious about repentance? John was. It wasn't popular. People didn't like it. but it was needed. And so as Peter tells us, he says, "He be holy, because God is holy. That's our call. We are to look at the glory and the worth, the praise and the beauty of who God is in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we are to say, "God, that is what you've called me to be, to be like you." And so all of us would probably in here say, you know what? There's something in my life that needs to change. I need to repent from this. And so begin to realize that and be willing to confess it, to hate it, and to say, Lord, I want to change. And not on your strength, but on his strength. Trust him. And he will begin that process of renewing and changing. Let's pray.